A few years ago, there was a travel magazine by the name of Thrillist Magazine, and uh, they decided to list what they saw as the most overrated tourist attractions in the country. And I don't remember all of them, but I remember reading the article and it struck me uh, pretty hard because on their list of the most overrated tourist attractions uh, was the Alamo. Right? I know, yeah. Okay. You had the same reaction I had. Uh, so they said this. Here's, here was the quote. It said, it's pretty much just some surprisingly unimposing stone buildings in a park across the street from a Jimmy John's. Now, now I read that and I thought, okay, that has to have been written by like Santa Ana himself, right? Or maybe somebody from Oklahoma or something like that, right? I, I read it and I thought, man, they don't, they don't get it. Talk about an exercise in missing the point of the attraction, right? Because you don't go there uh, because the buildings are impressive. And you certainly don't go there because you're looking for a good restaurant across the street, right? You go there to do what? To remember, right? Remember the Alamo. If you grew up in Texas like I did, you know that if you forget everything else in your life... There's one thing you always remember, and you remember the Alamo. Now, why do we remember the Alamo? Because it has become, for us as Texans, a sacred place. Why We remember it because at that place, some men gave their lives to secure Texan independence, to secure Texan freedom, right? And although they didn't win the independence of Texas at the Battle of the Alamo, it became a defining moment for the Texan army as they eventually did win their independence against Mexico, right? And so the battle cry was, remember Goliad, remember the Alamo, right? So that's why we go there. We go there to remember this critical moment in the history of what became, for a very short period of time, a nation with its own independence, Now, I share that because the passage we're going to look at this morning from the book of Exodus is one of those events that for the people of Israel, it became a defining moment for their nation every bit as much as the Alamo was for Texas, every bit as much as we think about the signing of the Declaration of Independence for the United States of America. It became this defining moment where in the years to come, in the generations to come, they would look back and they would say, that's really where our nation began. Okay, if you're familiar with any passage from the book of Exodus, it's probably this one. This morning, we're going to talk about Exodus 11 through 14, both the Passover narrative as well as the crossing of the Red Sea that we just sang about. Right, So if you've seen any of the movies about Exodus, whether uh, the old movie with Charlton Heston or the newer Prince of Egypt movie, you've seen any of these movies, you have seen these events play out on the screen, right? So you're familiar with them. But what we're going to talk about this morning is that for the nation of Israel, for the people of Israel, the reason these events were so defining is because they would look back in the generations to come and constantly remind their children, that's the moment where we went from being basically a family in Egypt under slavery, a very large family, but a family, we went from that to a nation. 
We went from people who were enslaved by the Egyptians to people who were set free by the hand of God, right? And so God's going to lead them out of slavery in Egypt in miraculous and powerful fashion. And in the process, he's going to teach us and them something about the character of God. He's going to say, not only am I going to lead you out, but as I lead you out, I want you to understand a little bit about who I am. And here's what they're going to learn. That not only is God powerful, but God is merciful. And not only is he going to save them, but he wants them and us ultimately to understand that if you are saved, if you are led out of slavery, if you are led out of the threat of death, here's how it happens. It only happens through the grace of God. It only happens not because you're good enough or I'm good enough to earn our freedom, to fight for our own freedom, but instead it happens because God in his mercy says this to us, you are deserving of death. And with the way that we have lived and disobeyed God, we have earned slavery and death. But instead of our death, God's going to offer a substitute. And he's going to say, in your place, I'm going to provide a lamb. And that's what we're going to see as we look at Passover this morning and then the crossing of the Red Sea. As God will say to the Israelites, the only reason you're not the Egyptians is because I chose you to display who I am. The only reason you have freedom, the only reason you have life is because I'm merciful. So that that their story is going to become our story. Right, and here's my only goal for this morning. My only goal for this morning is not to get us to do something else, but instead my only goal by the end of the morning is I want us to be worshiping and thanking God with both gratitude and awe to say, God, I love the God that you are because you are a God who is powerful and merciful. I want us to walk away from here with a renewed sense of awe at how God has written our story into his story that he saved us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're celebrating this morning. I'm going to tell the story of Passover in three acts this morning, kind of like a play. All right, so we're going to have three portions of our story this morning. Uh, You can open up your Bible if you want to follow along. You can open up to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to be in Exodus 11 through 14. All of the relevant passages this morning I went ahead and put on the screen because I didn't want us to get lost. I'm going to skip through the passage just a bit because it's so long. But if you've got a Bible and you want to read along, feel free to open it up. Here's Act 1 as we look at the Passover story. Act 1 is judgment. All right, so let me begin. Chapter 11. Act 1 is judgment. Let me read the beginning of our story. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh. And on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. Moses said to the people, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before and such as shall never be again. I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. Now, if you were with us 
last week, you know that this is plague 10 of 10, right? So there were nine that preceded this, and we talked about those nine last week. I told you that this week we would dive into number 10. Here, if you remember the story, is what's been going on up to this point. That for 400 years, the people of Israel have lived in Egypt, and for most of that time, they've been enslaved. And so Exodus chapter 1 essentially begins with a Pharaoh, not this same Pharaoh, but another Pharaoh who begins to oppress the Israelite people. He says they're getting very big. There are too many of them, so we got to get rid of them. So he, he has several strategies, remember, and his first two strategies are he's trying to kill all the baby boys in the land of, in the people of Israel, right? Either just by having them killed outright or by having them tossed into the Nile, right? So, so the Pharaoh of Egypt had said, I want to snuff out the history of the people of Israel before they get too big. 400 years later, judgment comes in the form of God saying to the people of Egypt, the firstborn in Egypt is going to die. And your future will be snuffed out. Right? I imagine that that first Pharaoh back in Exodus chapter 1 went to his grave thinking, I got away with it. Right? I got away with it. Because he had initiated his own judgment against the people of Israel. And he was largely successful. Right? He did not see. I should say 80 years before, not 400 years before. He did not see God's judgment, right? But in God's case, justice delayed is not justice denied. God never forgets his people. And so here we have this judgment. The 10th plague is the worst one. I was listening to a podcast this week, and it just so happened that the theme of the podcast this week, it was called Getting Away With It. And it was just stories of people who got away with stuff they shouldn't have done. Right, So the producers of this podcast, they encouraged their audience. They said, would you call us and tell us about a time you got away with it? You got away with something. They had a thousand people that called. I guess there are tons of people in the world with a guilty conscience. And so they said, I'm going to tell you what I got away with. And so people confessed things like small acts of theft or arson or violence that they got away with in high school or college. Several people confessed that they had faked graduation, either from high school or college, and never got caught. One person confessed that he pretended to be related to the President of the United States in order to get free health care at a hospital. One person confessed he placed an earthworm in a girl's hair in front of him in church some 30 years ago, and he never got caught. People unburdened their conscience But they said, I got away with it. No authority on earth ever caught me, right? There was no authority on earth that could discipline or judge the Pharaoh of Egypt. So for years and years, the Pharaohs got away with it. But here comes God's judgment, right? And as we've walked through this passage, God has said repeatedly, I'm going to demonstrate just this, that against all the gods of Egypt, remember, I will execute judgment. The pharaohs and the Egyptians, they worshiped these idols. And plague after plague after plague, God executes judgment not only on Egypt, but on the gods of Egypt to say, you worship these gods, but I'm greater. You worship the gods of the Nile. You worship the god of the frog. Remember last week we had Heket, the froggy goddess. But I'm greater. 
And so God's justice eventually comes, and, and it comes in the form of God saying, I'm going to pass through in the night, and every firstborn son is going to die. And like I said, to wipe out the firstborn son, you got to understand, in this culture, the firstborn son carries all the hopes for the future of a family. The firstborn son received a double portion of the inheritance of the father. The firstborn son would lead the family after the patriarch died. The firstborn son would carry the obligations of the family, the debts of the family. So to wipe out the firstborn son is to wipe out the future of that family. So God says every firstborn in Egypt is going to die from the greatest, from Pharaoh on his throne, all the way to the slave girl, all the way to the cattle. Because nine times in this passage, God has given Pharaoh an opportunity to soften his heart and listen to God and let the people go. And he says he'll do it, and then he hardens his heart. And he hardens his heart further. And he hardens his heart further. So the judgment now comes on the people of Egypt. But here's, here's what I actually want us to see. Even beyond this judgment on the people of Egypt, and this is going to lead us into our next point. The Israelites are due for judgment also. The Israelites are due for judgment also, right? If lack of faith in God brings upon us judgment, then the Israelites are due. Because remember, when Moses had come to them and said, trust in God's plan to lead you out of Egypt, at first they trust, but then they doubt, then they complain, then they refuse to listen to God's messenger. The people of Israel have already begun a pattern that they will continue for years in the wilderness, and that is they will complain, they will doubt, they will oppose God, they will grumble, they will disobey. And so as the angel of the Lord begins to come upon Egypt... God tells the Egyptians, every firstborn will die in the land of Egypt. But then he's going to turn to the Israelites and he's going to say, unless you trust in me, your household owes a debt also. And the firstborn of your house will also die. But then God in his mercy is going to provide a pathway for redemption. And that's where we get into Act 2. That God in his mercy and grace is going to provide a means of redemption, first of all, from death. I want to read from chapter 12 of Exodus. God said to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
God says to the people of Israel, it's not just the Egyptian households that owe a debt. It's your own. The firstborn of each family belongs to me. And as men and women who have disobeyed and run away and doubted and lacked faith, you owe a debt of death. So he says, I'm going to provide a way. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a lamb and it needs to be a spotless, perfect lamb. You need to inspect that little guy and make sure there's no spots on his wool. Make sure he's not injured in any way. And then I want you to keep him in your home for a couple of weeks. And you're going to watch him as you feed him. And you're going to become a little bit attached to that lamb. So that he's precious to you. And then I want you to slaughter it and paint the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of your home. And then you're going to gather together and you're going to eat a feast dedicated to God. And he says, I want you to eat that feast mixed with bitter herbs, probably to remind them of their time in slavery and the bitter slavery that they've gone through. And I want you to eat it with unleavened bread because as they depart from Egypt, there's no time for them to let the bread rise. And you eat it ready to go. Because you trust that God is going to lead you out. And when the angel of the Lord comes through, he's going to see the blood on these houses. And it says he will pass over your house, that the debt of death will not have to be offered by this house. Now, I find this interesting because as I read the passage, one question that came to mind is why this sign, right? Does God need this sign? Right? Is it, is it really the case that as God passes over, he can't tell which houses belong to the Israelites and which houses belong to the Egyptians? Is God's Google Maps faulty? And so he needs to figure it out. No, of course not. The sign isn't for God's sake. The sign is for the people. The sign is a tangible way for the people to say, We trust what you're saying. If you believed God and you knew that the life of your firstborn child was at stake, if you believed God and you really, you you really believed that the life of your firstborn child was at stake, you would do this, right? You would offer that lamb in place of your child without giving it a second thought. And you would paint the blood on the door of your home without giving it a second thought. And so this is a sign for the people to tangibly express, I trust in God. I don't trust in the protection of Egypt. I don't trust in my own intelligence. I don't trust in anything but what God has told me. That he's accepting the blood of this lamb as a substitute. This is one of the first times in the Bible that we see this concept of what we would call substitutionary atonement. Okay, now that's a really big word. We see it, though, uh, when we talk about Abraham and Isaac. Remember, God had told Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, and I want you to sacrifice him to me on Mount Moriah. Remember, so Abraham gets Isaac, and they go up to Mount Moriah, and right at the last moment, God provides a ram in place of Isaac. That's substitutionary atonement. That is that the blood of a substitute can take the place of the death of a person. Now, this concept is going to come back when we get to the New Testament, right? And here's where I want to begin to tie the Passover to our story. 
Right? Because I think it's significant as we move throughout the New Testament and the story of Jesus that really from the very beginning of Jesus' story, you know what he's called over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Look at this. Very first time John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized, John saw Jesus coming to him and said what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me give you a couple of others. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see what Peter's saying? He's saying Jesus is the Passover lamb. What does redemption mean? Redemption means you are bought out of slavery. You are bought back from death. At Passover, they purchased a lamb in place of their son, and they offered it. But a lamb was never enough, right? A lamb was, was never enough because the blood of a lamb, the, the book of Hebrews tells us this, the blood of, of bulls and goats and lambs, it can't really take away our sin, right? The idea of atonement really in the Old Testament, it just means to cover over. That's what the word means. All that the lamb did was it covered your sin temporarily until the next year and the next year and the next year, and you had to keep doing it. But the scripture gives us a hint that the day is going to come when God will offer a perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb once and for all. And when Jesus, his only son, comes right away in the gospel of John chapter one, he tells us, here he is, the lamb of God. Paul would put it this way in 1 Corinthians, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. The, the leaven here is a metaphor for sin. And he says, for Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So Jesus as the Lamb of God, redeeming us out of sin, redeeming us out of death, that he is offered in our place. That's the good news of the gospel, that where we deserve death, God provides a lamb. And by the blood of the Lamb, we're saved from sin and death. So God redeems the people from death, and then he's going to redeem the people out of slavery itself, right? So we move further into our passage. And you remember, they get to the Red Sea. They leave Egypt. Finally, Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to let you go. They go out of Egypt. But then Pharaoh changes his mind again. All of a sudden, he goes, this is a huge economic loss for my nation. I don't want them to go. So he changes his mind. He marshals all of his army together, and they chase the Israelites right to the edge of the Red Sea. And the Israelites turn around, and they go, thanks a lot, Moses. You led us out of Egypt only to die here by the hand of Pharaoh's army. And God says, hey, Moses, tell the people, just, just wait and see what I'm going to do. And he says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. And it says, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. This is the scene that you've seen in so many of these movies, with Moses standing by the water, and the waters part like a wall, and the people of Israel Israel walk right through, and the Egyptians are drowned. And so God redeems them from death in Egypt, and then he redeems them out of slavery as he judges the Egyptians at the same time. And again, as we move into the New Testament, we're going to see that this redemption out of death also leads to a redemption out of slavery. We sang it earlier, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are also no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer slaves to those things that once held us before we knew Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done. And so this moment for the people of Israel, like I said, would become a moment that they would look back on as their independence day. And in fact, as you read through the Psalms and as you read throughout the rest of the scripture, there is constant reference back to Passover and the parting of the Red Sea. When the people doubt God, the psalmists and the prophets will say, don't you remember? Don't you remember what he did? He led us out of slavery. He saved us from death by the blood of a lamb. Think about it this way. There are probably images that you could see, and in a moment, they will communicate to you freedom and victory and independence. Let me give you a couple of examples. Here we are with the, the famous painting of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Right, You see that and you go, that's the founding of our nation. That's a moment where we declared that we were free. And you see that and I'm guessing that, that feelings arise in your mind, feelings of freedom, maybe eventually feelings of victory. Right? Let me give you a couple of others. All of you have probably seen this image, the Battle of Iwo Jima in World War II, in this little island in the Pacific. Right? That's not where we won World War II, but the image to many people represents the freedom and eventual victory of the United States against the forces of Japan and Germany. Right? Here's another one in a similar vein, right from Times Square. VJ Day at the very end of World War II. We've all seen this image. It's an image of joy, an image of victory. Right? Here's another one. Image of, of victory... Right? And so we look back on that and we go, yeah, this is victory for our people. And we, we rejoice, even when we grieve temporarily. Okay? We rejoice. Right? So you see that image, and it makes you think of victory, it makes you think of freedom. Right? This is what Passover does. And this is why that from the very first Passover, God would say to the people of Israel, I want you to remember this, not just occasionally in your brains. I want you to celebrate it every single year. And that's act three is remembrance. Remembrance. I want to show you this from the very beginning, from the very first Passover, when God led them out of Egypt, even before he had led them out, God would say to them, now this day will be a memorial to you and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. 
throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. That is year after year. You're to celebrate this Passover. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when He smote the Egyptians, but He spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Exodus chapter 13, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. Remember, remember, remember. Now, here's, here's the critical point to notice, is that the nation of Israel, they, they, didn't, actually, they didn't actually do it. Okay, they didn't actually do this every year. In fact, when you get toward the end of their history in the Old Testament, right before they're carried away, into exile in Babylon. There's this king, King Hezekiah, who decides he's going to reinstitute the Passover. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, it says very clearly, by the way, there had been no Passover like this celebrated all the way since the time that the people entered the promised land. They had not done it as they were supposed to do it. And so what happens? Well, when you don't remember, you forget. And when you forget, you begin to worship somebody or something other than God. And that's what happens to Israel. And I want to make this critical point this morning because it's going to lead into where we're headed this morning. A lot of times we think about our relationship with God or our relationship with Jesus as something that is is merely internal, merely individual, merely spiritual, right? And we say, look, I don't want to be one of those people who just goes through rote rituals, goes through the motions, right? So when we talk about things like communion or even coming into worship with the body of Christ, we say, I don't want to be one of those people who needs that ritual in order to worship Jesus, right? That's the way that our culture often takes us when it comes to spirituality. But here's actually what God would say. He would say, yeah, absolutely. You have a relationship with me, right? That the ritual doesn't make the relationship, but we observe the ritual to remember the relationship. We observe the ritual because the relationship matters, right? Let me give you one illustration of that. Those of you who are married, you probably have a yearly observance, a ritual where you celebrate your anniversary. At least I hope you do. Right? And you say, on this day, we are going to remember the day that we came together as a married couple. We're going to look back on this day year after year after year. Now, men and women, if you say to your spouse, you know what? We don't need to do that because it's just a rote ritual, right? I don't need any kind of, I don't need any kind of ritual to like give you presents or, you know, take you to dinner or spend. I don't need to spend money because you know that I love you. How's that going to go over? Right? I read an article this week about a woman who was arrested for hitting her husband in the head repeatedly because he forgot their anniversary. <laughs> Why does it matter? Because celebrating the remembrance values the relationship. Sometimes we create even rituals amongst ourselves, amongst our friends and our family to remember and honor a relationship. I remembered this week my grandfather 
and his older brother. Uh, in 1967, uh, my grandfather sent to his brother Jimmy a birthday card that said, happy birthday to a good-looking relative. And when you opened it on the inside, it said, save this and send it back to me on my birthday. And so his brother did it. He sent it back. Next year, my grandfather sent it back. 37 years, they sent the card back and forth. Year after year after year. Why? Well, that's not a rote ritual, is it? It's a way of saying, I honor you. And the reason this is important is because when we don't remember, we forget. And for the people of Israel, that meant that their hearts drifted away from God and they worshiped idols and that led to judgment. Now, this becomes significant in the New Testament because in one of the most critical moments in Jesus' life, we see Jesus celebrating this feast with his disciples. Luke chapter 22, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Right? So, weekend of his death and resurrection. It's Passover weekend. And Jesus says, I want us to gather together before I suffer and die because I want us to thank God for his mercy and his grace. I want us to remember that God has a plan for this people and a plan for the world. I want us to gather together and do it. And as they celebrate the Passover, then Jesus is going to pause and at a couple of critical points during that celebration, he's going to make some additional comments, comments that still matter to us today because we now have, as the people of God, a moment of remembrance. Jesus will pause in the midst of that meal. It says, when he had taken some bread, now that would have been the matzah, the unleavened bread that they would have eaten to remember how God redeemed them out of Egypt. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance. Notice the word, remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. There were four different cups of wine traditionally taken at the Passover meal. This one is probably the Thanksgiving cup where we say thank you to God for your deliverance from slavery and for your love of us. He took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What Jesus says is this, under the law of Moses, year after year, there was a lamb offered at Passover so that God would pass over the sins of the people for another year. But here at this Passover, Jesus makes a point to his disciples. He says, I am now the lamb, and my blood is the blood of a new covenant, a new agreement that God is making with his people, that there will be one sacrifice now that will count forever and ever. And the author of Hebrews would pick this up at length, but especially in chapter 10. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus says, I'm now the Passover lamb. And he says, here's what I want you to do. When you gather, I want you to celebrate, yeah, this ritual in remembrance of me where you take the bread and you take the cup 
and you say, when Jesus died and Jesus rose again, guess what that is? That's our independence day. That's where our freedom was secured. That's the day we look back and we say it was there on the cross and at the empty grave that we know we have eternal life because God accepted the blood of the Lamb, His perfect spotless Son, Jesus, in our place. And so we have an opportunity to exercise faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Right? And certainly faith is something that we exercise in our hearts and our minds, but it is something that we proclaim when we take the bread and the cup. We remember what he has done and we say again and again, God, I trust you. I don't trust the idols of this world. God, I trust you. I don't trust in anything else for life and for forgiveness of sins. And so that's why we pause to remember For us, we do this once a month. We actually postponed it to this month, to this week, because I wanted to be able to make this connection. But we pause and we say, we're going to remember. We're going to remember. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We have a team that's going to begin to prepare this morning for us to celebrate communion. Right, And, and, and as I mentioned a couple of moments ago, All I really want us to walk away from this room with this morning is a renewed sense of gratitude to pause and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for our Independence Day. Thank you that you stood in our place. We owed a debt of death because of our sin. But you stood in our place. Jesus took on himself all of our sin. He took the death that we deserved. And then because he is God, he rose again and he set us free. And so from here into eternity, we look to that day. So as the elements come around this morning, let's pause for just a few moments just to say thank you and ask for the Lord to renew us in our strength and our faith as we follow him day by day. The team would go ahead and come forward. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we are grateful that through the death and resurrection of your son, the perfect spotless lamb, we have life. We have forgiveness of sin. We have freedom from death and eternal life. Father, we're grateful. I pray that we would remember not only week after week, but day after day, hour after hour, we would pause to remember and thank you for all you've done in Jesus Christ, who now stands 
or sits at the right hand of the throne of God. His work completed on our behalf. Father, we thank you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're about to close with a song, but before we do, I I wanted to say one more passage uh, to read that relates to everything we've been talking about this morning. Because as I mentioned before, when we're in the New Testament, Jesus is constantly referred to as the Lamb of God who was slain for us in our place. And there's this beautiful passage toward the very end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5 where all of the angels are standing around and John sees this vision and there's this scroll that needs to be opened and on the scroll are written the words of God and some judgments of God and they look around and somebody says, hey, who is worthy to open up the scroll? And everybody goes, we can't find anybody. They begin to cry. All right, but then John, he writes these words. He says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing for all of the rest of eternity. He's the lamb of God slain for us and that's why we sing